This edition of the Supercluster podcast is powered by Dropbox. Here at Supercluster headquarters in New York City, we use Dropbox every day to produce our content, including this podcast. Space fans, and welcome to a new episode of the Supercluster podcast. This is Alex Lynn, space reporter, filling in for Robin. And it's my first episode, so thanks for listening in. Today, we'll be talking about the journey from student to space explorer with Kiara Ferrari Wong. Kiara is a PhD candidate in Earth and Planetary Science at the University of Hawaii, Manoa, and she's also a graduate researcher at the Hawaii Institute for Geophysics and Planetology. She's currently studying the behavior of volatiles on the moon. She's also a ballet dancer, and she's done print and digital modeling for Capizio, dabbles in astrophotography, and she's a graphic designer. Talk about an absolutely stacked resume. Kiara, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to the pod. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem at all. First things first, just want to do a quick little check-in and see how you're doing and how you and your teams are adapting to COVID-19. Yeah, luckily here in Hawaii, we haven't really been hit too badly in terms of COVID-19. So we're all following social distancing protocols. We're all working from home and we've converted, we basically converted our workstations to our home stations. We're able to do most of our work remote. If we need to do lab work, we're allowed to go into the lab as long as we follow social distancing protocols and everything, which is really fortunate for us here. So yeah, I've been doing most of my work from my desk in my bedroom and using all my files from my hard drive that I brought from my my workstation. That is so crazy. Now, when you go in the lab, what exactly are the social distancing restrictions? Like, is there a limit on how many people can be in the lab at once? Yeah. So for the most part, we follow CDC guidelines. A lot of people are doing more than that. So they're not letting... As long as it's safe, they're not letting more than one person in the lab. So if the equipment's safe and the only one person needs to be there, only one person's allowed to be in at a time. If you need supervision, like you need two different people in the room, they have that. But we really make sure that everybody's distanced, everyone's wearing masks, and nobody's standing too close to each other if not ne- if it's necessary, basically. Wow. So only one person in at a time. How has that been affecting... Yeah. That's so crazy to really like imagine because you see like pictures of labs all the time and like they're usually filled with a couple of people doing many different things. So I'm curious about how that's been affecting research and studies at UHawaii. I know. Well, luckily for my group in particular, my research group, we don't have too much lab work to complete anymore because it was all done pre-COVID and we kind of lucked out in terms of that. A lot of us have a lot of things on our wish list that we wish we could go back in and take data of, but it's not necessary. It's not critical. There are other labs, like I work on a spacecraft team, and the engineers need to be in the clean room assembling the spacecraft components. And I do think there are a couple of them in there at a time, assembling spacecraft components and doing measurements. But yeah, for the most part, we've been able to retain access to the labs, and we're very lucky and fortunate for that. Other places aren't really allowed to go into their labs, and work is kind of halted in terms of being able to physically do anything 
Wow. So speaking of things that are halted at the moment, we touched on this very briefly in our interaction before going on this podcast. I'm curious about what you wanted to say about conferences and how this essential networking tool for grad students has been impacted by coronavirus. Oh, absolutely. So we primarily use conferences as a way to meet, you know, people who might hire us after we graduate and to present our research. Now they're mostly online, they're virtual conferences. And I think, as is the case in many industries, we're kind of finding our footing in terms of that. So there are a couple different formats that they've been doing. They've been doing either you pre-record a talk and people can click into that talk and view it and then send you email questions. And there have been live talks where everybody joins a Zoom or a WebEx conference. And basically, you have someone has 10 minutes, kind of like the regular format. But we haven't really been able to interact with other people as much. So we've been sending more emails to colleagues who are on the mainland and everything to kind of catch up and try and collaborate with them that way. It's been interesting for sure. I did a poster session recently where I had to pre-record my poster talk and I had it on a web page and then I had to sign into a Zoom room and just wait for people to kind of show up to ask me questions, which was kind of weird because normally a poster format, you know, you can interact with more people and you can interact with your poster neighbors and kind of learn about what they're doing. So it's definitely weird and something that we have to get used to because I think it's something that's probably going to be around for the next couple of years. Right, exactly. I think it's so it's so funny that you mention having to record or pre-record your poster talk because I'm just finding that this pandemic is like forcing us all to be audio and video engineers, even if we never thought we would have to do that. So that is just so crazy. I know. It's so difficult too. It's really it's just hard. another thing you have to be good at. <laughs> it's, it's surprisingly hard. Everybody listening, listen, audio engineering and video engineering very hard. And the people who make it seem <laughs> seamless, very talented, period. They're so good. <laughs> They're my heroes. My sister's Absolutely. been doing a lot of my video editing for me. Oh, that is so, I love that. I love a family collab. Yeah. I'm really thankful that she's willing. <laughs> yeah. You got a great sister. So though conferences might be on hold, you've already done your fair share of traveling around the world and the country. Mm -hmm. Prior to pursuing your PhD at UHawaii, you received your bachelor's degree at Columbia University in New York City. I was wondering if you could speak to the transition from being at a private university in New York City, which is full of a lot of people and where the winters can get more than brutal, to a public university. (laughs) Yeah, believe me, I know. To a public university on the Pacific Islands. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's a little bit of a difference between the grad and the undergrad experience. So it might be a little different if you were, say, an undergrad going to a private university versus a public university. But really, it was crazy at Columbia because it was such a huge campus, but Mm -hmm. you were also in this really big city and you kind of had access to everything you really wanted. Right. At the same time, I love being at the University of Hawaii particularly because I love the research that I'm doing here. So it's kind of a win-win, you know, you get really great weather, but then you also get to do, or at least in my case, I get to do this research that I'm really passionate about. So I think that I lucked out. Definitely for graduate programs, it's really, the institution you end up in is really whether or not you enjoy the research they're doing and whether or not you're interested in it. Whereas with, I think, undergraduate 
it's a little different with what you look for in a university in terms of public and private and the resources that are given to you. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of research, do you find that a research lab's home base or like environment seems to have any influence or effect on that institution's ultimate goals or function? Oh, that's interesting that you say that. I think in terms of the University of Hawaii, they try to make the university classes and environment like a Hawaiian place of learning, they call it. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, they achieve it. And in some cases, they do fall short. But it definitely that mission is very much influenced by the place and the culture that surrounds us. I'd say similar with other institutions, it's, it depends on, you know, the culture in that area, you know, is there like a lot of hustle in that area? How a lot of people say like in New York, basically, mm-hmm. you're always hustling in New York, but here everybody's always working really hard, but I feel like they have a really nice work-life balance if they want it, which is, which I appreciate, especially in a grad program where that's difficult to find. Definitely. I would definitely expect that in a grad program when I'm sure you're so busy all the time. But yeah, that's definitely something I would expect from a grad program where I'm sure you're busy all of the time. Even in a time like this, I'm sure you guys are super busy. I'm also wondering what motivated your decision to ultimately pursue your PhD in Earth and planetary science, particularly after receiving your bachelor's in astrophysics? Yeah, well, I realized, so there, there's about two components to this, maybe, maybe a little bit more. I really liked astrophysics as an undergraduate degree, and I really appreciate that I did it because it required me to do a lot of physics and a lot of math, and I got a really strong foundation in that. The problem with it is that it's really difficult, and I was feeling a lot of burnout just doing a lot of physics all the time. I wasn't finding that I was particularly good. I felt like I was average all the time and I didn't Mm -hmm. feel really confident. And I didn't feel confident that I, you know, could come up with scientifically interesting ideas in order to pursue this as a PhD in, say, astrophysics. I also wasn't really interested in anything astrophysics related because it wasn't as tangible to me. And I realized that as I was working, I interned at the American Museum of Natural History starting in high school, actually, when we were in high school together, my senior year. And it was like a great experience. I worked with Dr. Carter Emmart and we did Mars digital terrain models using rover data. That was super cool. And in college, I was kind of trying to find a research position at Columbia. It was very, very difficult. They don't have that many research positions for undergrads. And if they do, they're kind of limited. So I ended up working for him during college. And I was just like, you know, Mars is really tangible. We were working with Mars still. And you know, I was like, planetary is really tangible. And then the second component of it was that I realized that in order to do anything planetary related that I wanted to do, like mission design and stuff, I needed a PhD. So I had no plans in my junior year of college to get a PhD at all. I was like, I'm not going back to school. It sounds horrible. It sounds stressful. And then I realized in order to do what I really wanted to do, I needed to get this degree. So I was like, you know, I will, it's easiest to go right in after undergrad because I already know what it's like to take classes and I already know what it's like to take final exams. So I wasn't kind of leaving and getting used to the quote, like adult realm or the adult world and then going back in and having to readjust to being a student. I was already a student and I felt like that was an easier transition. I was very fortunate to get accepted. I didn't think I was going to get accepted 
And, you know, I'm really happy to be working with who I'm working with right now, Dr. Paul Lucy. Very cool. Also, Kiara, that's crazy. How could you not think you're going to get accepted? You're so qualified. That is wild, well, so, Kiara. <laughs> I didn't have that much research experience. And so that was part of it. And a lot of the professors, well, one of the professors at Columbia basically told me that, like, you don't have enough research experience. Like, don't be surprised if you don't get accepted. And I was like, oh, okay, so that's fine. <laughs> and then I, so I had pretty low expectations. I also only really wanted to go to three schools because I only liked about three specific programs. And it seemed really difficult because, you know, as an undergraduate, or at least as a high school student, when you're applying to undergrad, you can apply to so many programs. And then for this, it was like only three programs. And I felt like, you know, the likelihood that somebody was going to be available to take on a PhD student was, you know, pretty low, especially since I didn't think I had that much research experience going in. So research definitely is something that graduate programs are looking for in potential candidates then, right? Yeah, more and more. It apparently didn't used to be the case because it was rare. But now more than ever, I think they really look for prior research experience, which is difficult when you're at an institution that doesn't have a lot of research opportunities for undergrads. Uh Yeah. So it's definitely been a challenge. Well, it sounds like you totally overcame the challenge. I know. I think I really lucked out. (laughs) You know, I mean, honestly, it's luck. But also, I just want to say, if you guys didn't catch earlier, Kiara and I went to high school together. That's right. That's true. High school (laughs) in New Jersey years ago. (laughs) And now we're super old. Uh, (laughs) But Kiara was always so super bright. And I was just so excited to find out that she was really pursuing science and research because I ended up at Supercluster doing space reporting. And it's just so crazy how things work out like that. (laughs) But it definitely sounds like you really rose to the challenge. And ultimately, you were rewarded for doing so because you got into a great graduate program. And speaking of challenges, I actually want to like talk about something you mentioned on your site because I read this and I thought it was so rad. On your site, you say, science is very fact-based and absolute. But then you also need to be able to challenge it in order to have progress. I'm wondering what we're, that is just so, I love that you said that because I think it, first of all, challenges, you know, the everyday notion of what science is as like, this is the way that things are done. It's objectively like this, no questions. I love that it challenges that. So I'm curious Mm -hmm. about what some of the challenges you and your team at UHawaii have pushed against in terms of the status quo. Yeah, absolutely. So I think when I was saying that, I was referring to, I think it was, I was thinking about Newton's law of gravitation mm-hmm. and how it works really well generally, but it doesn't work on very large scales. So it starts to break down under certain circumstances and, you know, how something can do so well, like how, how some theory can describe something so well, but not describe it perfectly. And you're always searching for a better description of what's going on. And that's just generally what science is, which is awesome. And that's not really what you learn in elementary school or even high school. You don't really learn that until college. But in terms of my research group or in terms of my research, maybe, well, okay, for some background, basically, I work and I do research predominantly on the moon because that's what my boss, Paul Lucy, studies, and he's the one who pays me, right? 
So <laughs> our LOL. group focuses on the moon mostly. <laughs> <laughs> Good thing to focus on if you're getting paid. Yeah, but that's basically how it works, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. So he focuses on the moon. There's this whole theory that the moon is super dry. It has nothing on it. It's There's no water. There's nothing. And, you know, looking for water is kind of silly, right? And then in 2009, three separate spacecraft detected water on the illuminated surface of the moon where everybody thought they wouldn't find it. And so it's very famous. It's a very famous like discovery. And that kind of just shows like, you know, you can't just go with your preconceived notion of because it's like this, this can't possibly happen. Right. So in terms of my research, nobody's thought that or nobody thinks that we can find organics on the moon and organics. I'm meaning like anything, a carbon connected to a hydrogen anything more complex than methane, which is a carbon connected to for hydrogen, right? So what I'm doing is I'm searching for carbon on the surface of the moon. And that's part of my focus in my research. It's not all of it because we haven't found it yet, right? But a lot of people are very skeptical. I got a poster and I said, oh, you're my preliminary results. We haven't found anything, but we have a ton of data to analyze anyway. So we might find something somewhere. And they go, oh, better luck next time. You know, I guess you should stop looking. And I'm like, no, (laughs) you can't just stop looking, right? You have to keep searching and keep trying to challenge our preconceived notions of how, you know, the world works, how the universe works, because that's the only way you really make progress. And that's the only way you kind of change the status quo. Yeah, but you also have to, like, if I were to be searching for organics for a very long period of time, I can't make a career out of that, basically, because everyone's going to be like, nobody's found anything. You know, you can't just keep doing this. Nobody's going to find it. So you have to kind of know when to diversify. But it's always interesting to challenge preconceived notions in science. And and sometimes it's worthwhile. I think that just goes to show that as much as we may believe science to be this absolute thing, there are no real absolutes because we're always discovering new things. And I think there's actually a very similar element of that to the arts. And I actually really want to talk about your intersection as an artist and scientist. So you're a ballet dancer that's been featured in Columbia Ballet Collaborative. You've modeled for Capizio. You are a graphic designer and you are an astrophotographer. What to you (laughs) is the overlap between your artistic and scientific interests? That's interesting. Well, okay, I'll kind of share with you how I got into science and maybe maybe I'll find, you know, meaning in that along the way. Let's go on the journey. Yeah. In (laughs) high school, I was really, really set on being a professional ballet dancer. And I'm not sure if you even remember at that point, because it was, it was maybe sophomore year where I decided to switch gears. But I got after my freshman year, I had a really bad injury. And I was basically not allowed to do much for about six months, over six months, but it was six months where I wasn't really allowed to do anything but walk and swim. And that was, that was tough. It wasn't, I couldn't feel my injury. So that was one thing where I didn't really process it that well. But at the Mm -hmm. same time, it's like, I wasn't able to be in shows. I wasn't able to train. I wasn't able to do all the things that I wanted to do. And I kind of thought a lot about, you know, what I wanted to do with my life at that time. And, you know, the summer after I went to a summer intensive, which is like a ballet program that happens over the summer. And I just, you know, the recovery process was so hard and getting my technique back up to where I wanted it to be was so difficult. And the stress and 
and the mental stress of being in the ballet world and having all these external expectations of you, it made it less fun. I was just very, you know, I was not happy dancing for, you know, in terms of being a pre-professional or professional, because I just knew there would always be this sort of external stress that was placed on you by, you know, ballet masters and ballet mistresses Mm -hmm. and company directors and all of that. And I was always comparing myself to others being like, why can't I be as good as this person? Why can't I be as good as that person? Right. Mm -hmm. So I kind of took a step back then and was like, you know, I like science. And at that point, I remember I was taking an astronomy class with Mr. Paul. And oh, you remember Mr. Paul. He was the physics teacher oh my at gosh. our school. You guys, this guy, he, first of all, his classroom was in the basement. And that's all you need to know. He also, <laughs> used, he used to play the trumpet. He used to play King oh, and I songs. So cool, yeah. Oh my God. He played King and I songs on his trumpet, like after school hours. Oh, I love that. Oh, it was so, I remember that. It was so cute. Anyway, you're taking this amazing class. He was class. the nicest guy. <laughs> yes, he was so sweet. So anyway, you're taking this amazing class with Mr. Paul, an icon yeah. at high school. An icon, really, yeah. And I was just like, I was taking astronomy. And basically, I learned in that class that astronomers don't know everything. And that was kind of when it clicked. When it was like, oh, we don't know everything. And that's kind of when I was like, oh, science is really interesting because, you know, it's not fact-based and absolute, kind of like what we were talking about before. And that's when it kind of clicked. And I was like, well, I could do this. This is very interesting to me. On top of it, kind of where the arts come in is I was doing visual arts at our at our school and loved photography and looking at pictures of, you know, space objects like galaxies and stuff. That's really visually appealing. It's beautiful. And looking at close-up pictures of other planets, you can kind of see how it's how it's very similar is some of the planets and you know moons are eerily similar to you know what we have on earth and these spacecraft are taking these beautiful beautiful photos of other worlds and that was so intriguing to me and it was really you know it was super appealing so that's kind of how i transitioned into that i think that science requires a lot of discipline and that's where ballet training really comes in handy because mm-hmm. it's a ton of discipline all the time and you really just have to sometimes just put your head down and power through it and get through it because if you give up on you know the first roadblock you're never gonna you're never gonna make it to the the end result so I think that's a little bit where it helps me I think that's just such a perfect example of how even if these disciplines don't necessarily seem related there's always some sort of skill or some sort of lesson you can pull from to then put into the other discipline yeah absolutely I'm so glad you brought up photography as like a stepping stone for your transition because I actually really want to talk to you about astrophotography and how you got into that and just about all the factors that you have to think of with astrophotography in addition to like photography period. I mean, I'm just always so amazed when we see any of our launch photographer photos because they're just so mind-blowing, but there's so much thought that has to go into that beforehand but yet it's just a picture. And I guess it in your brain, it's like, oh, I guess that seems easy. But then I'm sure if I like took a picture of something, it would look like, I don't know, a potato or something. So <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just curious about what your process has been for that. Yeah, absolutely. So I got interested in astrophotography when I was taking an observational astronomy class at Columbia. I think it was my sophomore spring. And we had 
a trip to MDM Observatory in Kitt Peak, Arizona. I had a DSLR that I bought my sophomore year of high school that I was able to bring with me. And I brought a tripod and everything. And one of the TAs, who was a graduate student, was into astrophotography. And he kind of taught us a little bit, you know, how to change the settings on your camera and all that. What really came in handy was I was really good at Photoshop because of my experience at our high school mm-hmm. when I was a visual art concentration or major or whatever they call it. I don't even um, remember. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) but I did visual arts and we did a ton of Photoshop. We did a ton of, you know, Illustrator and stuff like that. So it's a major component of astrophotography is being able to manipulate these photos in Photoshop because unless you have a really great lens, which I didn't, the sky is very large, you know, and so you're taking images that you kind of have to piece together in the end. Or if you're doing a star trail, right, you have to leave your camera out for about two, three hours, maybe longer just taking various exposures of the stars as they move throughout the night. And then at the end, you have to piece them into one photo, which is why you get a star trail. So, I mean, you have to take into account so many things. You have to set the shutter speed. You have to set the aperture. The focus has to be at infinity So, in order to get you know, the starlight in because the stars are essentially infinite distance away as far as the camera lens is concerned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of factors. It's a lot of manual adjustments. But it is definitely, it's definitely worth it. It definitely messes up my camera when I do try and take normal photos in daylight after. But it's, you know, it's worth it in the end. (laughs) Sounds like there really are a lot more components to astrophotography than I originally thought. So I definitely will not be dabbling into that because it will inevitably be a disaster on my end. Um, No. (laughs) (laughs) So Kiara, I'm curious about your take as a person who is poised to become the next generation of scientists and researchers in the U.S., what your take is on the increased commercial presence in the space industry, where private entities Mm -hmm. are now not only just involved in parts production, but also do you seem to have a hand in mission operations, like we've seen recently with Mm -hmm. SpaceX and NASA's DM2 mission? How might these differences in scope capital and interests affect the space industry as the commercial presence continues to grow? Yeah, the commercial space industry is really, really interesting and exciting because it's starting to get really, you know, really important and prominent. Absolutely. NASA's probably going to be, I mean, I'm only a graduate student, so I've only sat in on a couple, you know, meetings where NASA people come and spoken to us about what their plans are with the private industry. But from what I understand and from what I'm kind of seeing, you're going to have NASA basically saying, oh, we want to go to this place and we want these kinds of instruments on board. And then they're going to be paying the private companies to put instruments on their landers and rovers and stuff. Wow. Yeah. And so it's really interesting. So it's kind of like taking you know, NASA, where, you know, they've built all the rockets before they built all the landers, they built everything. And, you know, letting other companies do that, and they kind of focus on, you know, what the science mission should be, which is, you know, basically what most scientists are interested, or if not all scientists are most interested in, you know, so it's pretty exciting. Commercial companies are, I mean, predominantly were Department of Defense funded, So they Mm -hmm. do have a lot more money than government institutions. But when they do take on science contracts, they've said it's like the most fun thing 
that they work on. Everybody's always excited when they take on science contracts because wow. they kind of get to combine that engineering aspect with the science aspect again, which is you know awesome. So it's I think private industry is only going to become more important in space exploration and where it's going. I mean, other people could probably tell you more about that, but I see it being a huge, huge role in the near future for sure. Right. I think it's interesting you bring up the funding from the Department of Defense that these companies are mm-hmm. getting, because from what I've understood from just speaking with other researchers and scientists, funding is always a big question when it comes yeah. to de- developing research, developing new parts, developing the next space mission. What do you believe commercial space's role might be in helping to address that problem? Well, so they definitely have a lot more money, which means they can retain more employees and the employees have more stable jobs, right? It's difficult at academic institutions where if you're on what we call soft money, which means you're going from proposal to proposal or grant to grant, basically, you're not funded by any sort of stable income or any kind of stable money from the university. And that's what's really stressful to, I think, a lot of people. In terms of these companies, I think they're going to be making their money mostly from Department of Defense contracts, but then also NASA is going to be paying them to develop certain things. And so they're going to be getting government money as well. Mm -hmm. So even if the government's not paying them, they're still going to be funded because the Department of Defense is paying them, Mm -hmm. which is also government. So I guess even if NASA is not paying them, the Department of Defense will paying them and they're going to be able to retain their employees Mm -hmm. and retain that kind of knowledge and expertise that they have. Versus academia, if you kind of lose your funding, it's really difficult because you're just not getting paid. Certain people, that's kind of why, you know, tenure track positions are really sought after because Mm -hmm. you're always going to have a stable source of funding in academia. It's definitely more stressful, I think, for people being in academia. And I don't think it's for everyone. And I really don't think it's necessarily for me, but Mm -hmm. we'll see where I go. And don't think I want to work at, you know, university, but maybe, Uh you know, a research lab might be nice. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure the capital, the question of capital is something that affects a lot of people's decisions in terms of where they want their career to go, where they want to end up working, what they end up doing. I think, I mean, it's a big question for all of us, right? You need money to live. and support yourself. Yeah, and how are you going to support your family? Exactly. How, how are you going to even do your job if you can't support your family? Like, it's just like an endless cycle of we need money. And I'm, I'm sure that's yeah. why we see people hop from like public sector to private sector all the time or go from academia to private sector. But speaking of what you envision for your career, Right now, in this moment, and I know that might be like a crazy, yeah. a crazy question, just because who knows what the world will look like in a couple of years. What mm-hmm. to you is the dream? I love working on missions. It's so cool because I love being part of a team. I love, you know, physically, you know, doing things with my hands is really exciting to me because I can, I can see something at the end. You know, there's a tangible product in front of me. And so I really, I really appreciate that aspect of mission design. So I want to do something with that. Maybe one day be a principal investigator on a space mission would be mm-hmm. really awesome because it kind of combines that passion for science with the idea of, you know, spacecraft instrumentation and all that. You know, how do you do the science that you want to do and how do you build it? So that's really exciting to me. 
I don't know. I've been kind of toying around with different ideas, but all of it's kind of mission-based. And so going to a place where I can work on mission design or work on a spacecraft team is a really exciting notion to me, at least at this point in my career. Well, I'm putting the good vibes out there for you because I think you'd be awesome. (laughs) Oh, thank you. (laughs) And with that note, Kiara, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's much appreciated. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Thank you for having me. 